Welcome back to another episode of the Shifting Podcast. I'm Edward Uh and today I'm sitting here with a good friend of mine, Tomas from von Schleinitz. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I can hear. Uh, we're sitting in my home studio here today, so I can hear my uh, my parrot who's gone viral screaming in the background. Um, I never remember how to pronounce your last name though. Hain. It is just Hain. Yep. Okay. So we've got Thomas Hain from von Schleinitz. Uh, and we are talking German Riesling today. Uh, we've talked about Alsatian, and in fact, we're, we're sitting here drinking Alsatian wine. So, um, Well, that was German at some point. It was, <laughs> right, yeah. you know. And we talked a little bit about that when we did an episode with uh, um, Patrick Aleda from Pierre Spar. Like, depends on where you draw the line, right? The right. Rhine or the Vosges. <laughs> you know, there's two natural boundaries there. And, and truth be told, a lot of the uh, um, Alsatian winemakers actually do like to get their education from uh, German top wine universities because it's more of the style that, uh, uh, or the Alsatian style is more aligned with the German winemakers than it is with, you know, if you go to Bordeaux or do you go to Burgundy for your winemaking schooling. Certainly, I definitely got that vibe when we were in Alsace. I mean, it was this weird kind of Tex-Mex, you know, version is how I like always tell Americans, like, you know, when you get to those border areas of Texas where it's not quite Mexico, it's not quite quite the United States, you know, and when you're in Alsace, it's a little bit of Germany, it's a little bit of France, and but definitely the German influence is <laughs> far yeah. more present, and even in the like enunciation of words. Yeah, and even for, actually von, von Schlein, it's my father who took the winery over from my um, for my grandfather, back then it was just a Tony Hain winery. And then my father took it over and actually changed it to von Schleinitz by purchasing the von Schleinitz estate that was in the, in the neighboring village. And he went to wine school in, uh, in Geisenheim together in the 50s with an Alsatian winemaker, Jean-Baptiste uh, Jean Adam. And their friendship actually lasted until my dad passed. And, um, and they certainly... There certainly was a lot of similarity in their in their winemaking, in their in their view of wine, and uh, it goes very far back. So definitely Alsatian uh, Riesling, Alsatian wines have uh, a lot of affinity with. I mean, just across the Rhine with wines in the Pfalz region, and and uh, in, in the uh, down in the Baden region. Yeah, that was our intent was to get into uh, into the Pfalz region, but uh, you know, three days of drinking with Patrick wouldn't. Knock, knock that out of the possibilities. But um, so, you know, what I want to really tackle today is the impossible task. And you've already addressed it a little bit um, as we were chatting before the show uh, is kind of decoding German wine because you talked about how it's just, you know, it's always this uphill battle. And we've been fighting it for a decade as well in our restaurants. Like, how on earth do we, you know, there's, there's so many uh, misperceptions about Riesling and, and German wine in general. And, you know, I just think that people um, don't understand exactly what they're buying. You, you had mentioned a story about a, uh, a buyer that had quite a collection. Um, yeah, but main, mainly red wines. And so that the Riesling was not even on his radar. Uh, but just I get it so often, even of frequent wine drinkers, they just don't look at Riesling because they had a few bad examples, whether it's domestic Rieslings or mass-produced lower-end uh, German Rieslings. And that shapes their entire perception of what these wines are about. And yes, if you continue to drink bad wine, it will continue to, to taste bad. <laughs> so until you, until you actually venture out and uh, discover the enormous variety from dry to 
fruity to sweeter and that the purpose of the sweetness and the sugar in the wine as a structural element to actually support fruit it's not about sweetness even on the sweeter side it's about what layers of fruit is being conveyed by this instrument the combination of alcohol sugar and then supporting all these fruit layers that that makes the wine complex not sweet so you're preaching to the choir here on this side of the table yes. uh, but it's it is very confusing especially german wine labels right so um i guess to start to break this down because i don't want to lose any of our listeners right off the bat because i've been preaching the gospel of riesling for so long and it's and it's hard to convince people because there's the perception that a is too sweet um, and then there's the other kind of side of that where um if you're already kind of just putting your toe into the water of the wine world um, it can be quite confusing looking at a label of uh, a Burgundy or a Bordeaux or something. But when you get into German wines, you guys really kind of uh, overdo it on information overload. You know, like there's something a lot confusing. Of in vineyard, right? Like there's a, every all the information's on there, which is fantastic. But it's a it's a matter of decoding that but you, information. But you need to understand the language. I mean, right. you get a lot of different information. You can get the vineyard, but do you know whether it's a large vineyard? Is it is it actually a good vineyard? Is it a, a single vineyard that is fantastic, or is it just a small vineyard that has a name and doesn't really necessarily convey quality? Because I, I the the system of Germany is is wrong in the way that it it wants to convey to you that you can actually decipher quality. Um, and quality to me is always about the producer. It's not about whether you own a plot of land in a, that, that has the potential to make great wine that doesn't lead necessarily to great wine. And, and as in any, any industry, as you well know, whether it's a restaurant, whether it's, I always say, lawyers, dentists, whatever, there's people that really know what they're doing. There's people that get by and people that shouldn't be doing what they're doing. <laughs> right. and, and, and that is just Let's true. hope and, your dentist isn't one of those. <laughs> not one of the latter, correct. <laughs> right. So, um, but it's, it's true for reasoning. I get it so many times in my presentations that I get people, I don't like sweet Riesling and then I hand them a sweet Riesling and force them to keep it in their mouth for a few seconds and they're going like, wow, this is fantastic. Because now they had actually a wine that has layers and layers of fruit that actually, and, and who doesn't like fruit? It's not about sweetness. But getting people to understand that after Riesling has become this bad rep of being just simple and sweet and has been treated that way in the United States for sure for the last whatever years it goes back Absolutely. to when the first uh, when German the first immigrants actually made Riesling here it is still it was just kind of the cheap sweet wine sweetness was important uh, from just a satisfactory taste satisfactory right. standpoint it wasn't to make great wine and Riesling has always been treated, treated as the grape varietal that just makes that simple little sweet pleasant whatever I trace it back to the blue bottles. <laughs> Every blue time bottles like, were actually a, a, a matter of marketing and right. that, that didn't come up till till like the like uh, 80s. 80s yeah, yeah, yeah with, was... with Schmitzerne and um, now I'm, I'm slipping on the name that I was in from the Mosul Valley, the, the uh, Kocham area, an, an exporter. Anyway, and so, it was a pure marketing thing. It had actually nothing to do with tradition, nothing to do even sure. with leapfrog milch or any of that. That that is was a much later development. The, the irony of this of Riesling, I always find, is that well, a you get uh, Americans that consistently say like, "I only drink 
dry wines. I can't drink anything sweet that like, has any residual sugar because there is that. As you're like, watching them, I'm as saying you sweet. watch them having their dessert or exactly. their Coca-Cola or whatever, absolutely. 100% the fattest country in the world. And we're saying we don't like sweetness. I'm like, absolutely not. We're because actually, I think there's, the, there's the U.S. That, is actually the second highest consumer we, of sugar after Mexico. Okay. Um, per capita. The... But again, I think when we say, you know, I don't like sweet, it's because there's this perception of that if it's sweet, it's lower quality because uh, speaking to what you said, exactly. you know, there was, exactly. there was a history of that. Yes. And, and that's a big misperception because sugar in, in wine really is a structural element. It right. should not be the only thing in the wine. So if you only taste sugar, then that's a bad wine. If the sugar is there to support fruit that has a lot of nuances. Riesling is one of the most complex grapes. Over 100 different esters represented in it. So the sugar just really support for all these esters to be able to be conveyed to your palate. And uh, plus, Riesling is so diverse in terms of what climate it grows in, what soil it grows in. It really picks up different different esters and produces very different characteristics. And then under the hands of a very knowledgeable producer, now we have somebody that really cares and is knowledgeable and capable to actually express that. And that's very important. So people need to, not only with Riesling, but particularly with Riesling, pay attention to who is the producer. And so when we talk about Riesling, we are typically talking about Germany. So there are some really beautiful Rieslings coming out of the Pacific Northwest and of various other regions, but usually we're talking Alsace, about Germany, Austria. right? Yes, true. Um, and so Riesling is a grape native to Germany, am I right? I believe that it is. Riesling is, is native to Germany, yes. So what makes German Riesling so different than what we're getting for the rest of the world? I mean, is it the climate? I would certainly think Riesling being a uh, late ripening grape varietal did benefit over the last years and leaving alone the topic of climate change at this point that is, <laughs> right. that's, that's certainly wreaking havoc in, in some areas and giving opportunity in others. Um, the, the cooler climate that we experience in the, uh, in the German wine growing regions certainly benefited that late ripening grape royal that really gains most of the, the flavor components uh, at, a, at a later time, where, which is really not possible when you're growing in Oregon or Washington because you just don't get that hang time because your acids already drop too fast and you, you can't uh, leave the fruit on the wines anymore. So you need to harvest and it makes less expressive wines because they haven't really fully ripe if, ripened the fruit. So explain to me, because this is where I, a lot of people get confused when we start to see like the designations on a German wine label between like the grape ripeness and then there's, which doesn't necessarily have a correlation with sweetness level. Correct. Uh, well, that's let, where let a lot me, of people, yeah. Well, well, well I think ger German wines got unnecessarily complicated by the, by that engineering mind of Germans <laughs> that want to tell you everything there is to know. Right. Oh, uh, info overload. It's a it's info overload. In in the end, there there's really two things that you need to understand. Or three things: producer first, and after that, you look at the alcohol content. If the alcohol content is somewhere between eleven and thirteen and higher, even in some of the the high end dry wines, um, if the alcohol is high, you deal with the dry wine. If your alcohol goes below 10%, 10, 10 and a half and below, you're dealing with a sweeter style wine. So you don't need to read the label for that. You can read the numbers, you know whether you're dealing with a dry or a sweet wine. And then just look at price. Expensive wines actually do have a high correlation with higher or better fruit being used than wines. So you certainly have marketing costs, blah, 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 in, involved in price as well. 
but it does correlate. The cheaper the, the wine, the less quality fruit is being used. Mm-hmm. And that gives you three very good guidelines of you defining everything else. And you can leave the whole nomenclature actually at that point on the side. And later on, the more experience you get, yeah, you'll figure out, oh, this is the, the wine that I just purchased for 20-something dollars from a great producer. Oh, it's from this vineyard, and that vineyard has a perfect exposure and consistently produce higher, produces higher quality fruit. Great additional piece of information. You don't need it to drink a good glass of wine. So there's really unique um, kind of, especially where your particular wines grow, that the terrain is quite different than like what people that are familiar with maybe doing a wine tour in Napa Valley and looking at the vineyards. It's, it's quite strikingly different. Um, even if you look at the photos and you have a, you guys have a really beautiful website as well, um, that shows some photos, um, yeah, on funschleinitz.com, you can see some of the, some of the pictures actually interesting about that is you have such enormous influence of the microclimatic, uh, or microclimatic influences based on the terrain, because we're so far North already that a twist in the river, a, a slope will make a difference to, um, to an area that may not be a slope. So it's actually also counterintuitive that the southern part of the Mosul actually has a much cooler climate than the northern part of the Mosul where von Schleinitz is located just outside of Koblenz. We're in the Terrassen Mosul, which is actually the second warmest microclimate in all of Germany after really? the Kaiserstuhl in the Baden region, which is near Alsace. And that actually gives us an opportunity to get higher ripeness fruit. We can do actually more Pinot Noir. We do more dry wines because you need really high expressive, um, high ripeness expressive uh, fruit in order to make an expressive dry wine versus you can with lower ripeness fruit maintaining higher acidity or even if you have the ripeness but in a cooler climate it maintains higher acidity, then you can do really beautiful sweeter style wines. What the Mosul and the Tsar Valley are absolutely known for. One of the things I like the most about Riesling, and and I every <clears throat> and I uh, maybe I'm speaking out of turn, but I'm just talking about my own personal experience. When I talk to the true wine geeks, and you know, um, I've met numerous just through my um, businesses and also through Arthur. Um, you, you know, you ask if, if you had to peg it to one one varietal, if you had to drink one varietal for the rest of your career, what would it be? And almost without fail, the people I've met have said Riesling um, because it's very expressive of where it's grown. And so there's that we've well, talked you're basically, about. You're basically saying I'm narrowing down to one because I can't have it all. Right. Because you can have dry, you can have sweet, you can have sparkling, you can have very minerally, you can have very fruit driven, you can have all these different flavors, even so you narrow it down to one grape variety. Exactly. And you, it's very, very expressive of where it's grown. And I always tell my new employees that I, if you know nothing about wine, you come in and you've never even put your nose and really thought about what you're smelling in a glass of wine within 10 minutes, I can teach you to be able to blind taste the difference between a New World and a Germanic Riesling. And mm-hmm. I think, I mean, with very basic knowledge, you would be able to like pick those things up because they are very expressive of where they've grown. I mean, you've got uh, very rocky soils and, and gravel and 
slate and mica and all these things that kind of go into the, the vineyards and, and that really kind of... Um, but that actually also leads us, or the, the comment just, just made about the variety that you get sure. within, within Riesling leads to why it's not so accepted by the general public because the message is really hard to communicate. I talked to a Bordelais friend of mine just the other day and we're like, yeah, you guys have it easy. One chateau, one wine. So it's a very simple um, message to convey to, to the consumer. Yet when you're promoting uh, or talking about von Schleinitz, yeah, we make 25 different wines. Most of them are Riesling and they taste very different. So that's interesting because I've actually done a few uh, dinners with you and I've attended a dinner with you. And typically when you do your dinners, you do side-by-side pairings with each course. Correct. To uh, show which is the really variety. And, and so how do you, how do you structure those? Cause when you're, um, showing two wines on the exact same course of, of food, and I know that not all of our listeners out there are thinking about pairing wine with food. Although if you're, when in doubt, I say choose Riesling because it's one of the most food-friendly wines. Choose more than one <laughs> right, with every go. course. So, but I mean, how do you structure that? So you said you're showing more than one, but exactly how you kind of, uh, what's your intent there? Well, uh, first of all, um, the, the whole misperception Riesling being sweet, I do want to show dry Riesling versus sweet Riesling so people can see based on the same fruit, the very different expressions just in those two wines. So I, same I fruit, always- Same winemaker. Same winemaker, same vineyard, same vin, same same vintage, same everything. Essentially, just one is fermented longer, making a dry wine. One is the fermentation has stopped earlier, making a sweeter style wine. So now you have two wines from the same fruit, same area, same everything else. They're just differently vinified, and just showing the difference first taste the wines themselves, and now go to the food, and then taste the individual wines with the food. At that point, you will figure out which combination actually is more pleasant to you. And depending on what food interaction is, I can predict the interaction. I can't predict what your brain appreciates or doesn't. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, and it, and it leads to an enormous aha effect in the consumer that they actually realize not only, oh, there's dry and sweet, but also, wow, these wines actually do work differently with the food. That is what I think is what got me um, hooked in the first place was honestly, it was, um, a friend of mine bank that used to run the program, uh, at Lotus of Siam in Las Vegas. And he has since yeah. opened uh, Chata Italian wine and, and sold it and Chata street. And he just opened a new restaurant. Um, so props and congratulations to bank that just opened, uh, Lamai, mm-hmm. um, in Las Vegas. But I mean, he had built like a, what, a 450 bottle list yeah, and predominantly Riesling. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, well, I'm sorry. Yeah. 450, I think it was 450 bottles of Riesling and then I think it was 600 total, but 450 of them were Riesling. Yeah. Um, but it was like the, how different the food tasted with the wine and how different the wine tasted with the food. It I was, remember the story that he actually had people uh, that ordered, uh, you know, California cab with his, with his food in the, in the uh, old restaurant. And he basically told him, just put that wine away, drink it at some other time. It's not going with our food here. <laughs> and they were like, oh, okay. And they really enjoyed uh, the food later on with a completely set of wines that he, that he suggested. And it certainly wasn't California red. It's, it's hard to make those, um, suggestions to people often because you know a lot of times people just order what they know and they're like okay I want a California red and you don't get that opportunity to say hey sorry you're going to drink this and so when we do a dinner with von Schleinitz or if I'm at home I can say hey sorry guys this is what I'm serving with the food tonight um, but it's definitely I think um, 
people are unwilling to kind of <clears throat> venture outside of their box. And true, very true. But that's exactly what, in my wine dinners, I'm trying to yank their brain off the regular track. I'm trying to show them here, try this versus that with the same food. And so on the, on the first course, I usually do dry versus sweet. On the second course, I do lighter style wines with heavier. So in that heavier meaning more textural impact on the palate. So creamier, richer wine versus a lighter wine. And uh, how that interacts with the food because our our receptors all work uh, on on impact they desensitize so whatever you impact your palate with your next bite or your your next flavor will be the perception of that will be impacted by what you just did so if you expose your palate to high acid if you bring acid again the receptors basically go like ah been there done that and they're not perceiving that as much. So that's why when you're drinking sweeter style wines um, with a sweeter style dish or a dish that contains sweetness, that sweetness in the dish basically lets you not perceive the sweetness. But sweetness also creates texture. So that texture will still be there because that's different receptors. Right. So now you're, you, the, the dish with sweetness um, will make the wine taste drier, but you get creaminess. If you take a wine that doesn't have that sweetness in it, it also has less texture. It's a much leaner wine. So now you have a rich dish with all of a sudden a real kind of acidic, harsh kind of wine. So when you're taking a dry wine with that combination. That's interesting that you say that because I, I you often hear it in the other direction, right? You, you hear people often say, or Psalms, or um, even kind of like a lot of the novice wine books say, you know, match the acid. You're not talking about the sweetness, like, but if you have an acidic dish, make sure you have a wine that can stand up to it with it's got an acidic nature to it. But it's, so a, it's, it's actually the, the same, same thing. It's actually the same thing because you're exposing your palate to high acid. Your palate desensitizes for acid. Now you need a high acid wine because your percept it, it right. needs to be higher because your receptors are already saying, ah, no, not not recognizing that. I think the other thing, uh, going back to like bank, and um, I didn't know we were going to make this episode about bank, but I guess it is. Um, it's got, <laughs> it hey, was it's, a great it, experience in, in Vegas hanging no, out there. No, man, I love him. He's a great guy, and he has never steered me wrong on a uh, bottle of Riesling. But, you know, with uh, my experience with Thai cuisine as well, is that, you know, those lower ABV um, you know, everybody, I don't, I don't think most people pay attention really to that, that percentage of alcohol, but that 3% between 11 and 14 is huge, especially if you're or between eating, nine and 14, that's if, a few more yeah, numbers and it's very important. If you, especially if you're eating spicy food, yeah. um, because that, that you're talking about putting the, the spicy component of the food, the capsaicin in solution across your tongue and where you're really, <laughs> your receptors are kind of plugging into more of the spice level and you've got to be able to bring that down and, I, that's what I I often tell people. Like, if you're eating spicy food, like it's I promise you, it's greater than the sum of its parts. This may not be a wine that you personally would want to sit and drink a bottle of all by itself, and this might not be a dish that you would personally want to sit and eat a plate of without something to cool your palate down. But when you put those two things together, it's transformative. Exactly, it, it's the combination that that works. And and the the fact of low alcohol alcohol will aggravate the spice on your palate. So mm -hmm. if you're taking a dry wine with high alcohol to, to that combination, that will spiral the heat up. If that's what you like, great, okay. But tannins do the same thing. So Correct. like, you know, when people order those California, like Cabernets or Merlots or Zins, it's the exact same thing. And so you know the wines- But the they wines, also do come with about 14 to 16% alcohol. Right. It's doing the all the same thing. It's trouncing yeah. all over the food and intensifying the heat. So at the same time, you're really 
So Thank side you. note, if you frequent bad restaurants, drink heavy wines. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> there, there we go. We can end the show now. We got our, we got our one tip there. <laughs> but yeah, the, and that's what I think that that transformative effect is what makes Riesling so uh, endearing to those of us that are fanatics about it. Yeah, and, and uh, often I hear, you know, that, that Riesling will fit every food, but and people may think that that is just one Riesling. That's not the point. The point is that no matter what food you're eating, there is a Riesling out there because you have such a variety that will fit this food and make you happy in that combination. So it's the variety, not that it's, it's not the one size fits all. It's the variety that actually makes it possible. So when somebody's going out to a shop and they're looking at a list, and I, I would have a hard time believing that most wine shops or bottle shops would have a you know a hundred bottles of Riesling on the shelf. But if they do, like what are the key things to look for other than like you know you're, you said look at the alcohol content, but the ABV. Um, but we still start seeing some of these German words like uh, uh, cabinet. Um, my German's terrible. I don't want you to... Cabinet Spätlese Ausländer. There we go. That's that's referring to the ripeness of the fruit at right. the point of harvest. Nothing to do often, with sweetness. But that often gets confused with sweetness, right? Like, so you see... Because okay, it's, cabinets- it's being taught by importing companies that focus only on sweeter style wines. Because uh, the higher your ripeness, the higher your potential alcohol. Right. So if you ferment the same amount of alcohol off, let's say 9%, then... Your your cabinet with lower potential alcohol is not as sweet as your Spätleser, as your Ausleser. Because right. if you're fermenting the same amount off, then you have more residual sugar in, in riper fruit than you have in lower end fruit. So basically when a, a, a grape is on the vine and the longer that, that and it, for those of you out there that aren't familiar or, uh, with vinification, or even uh, the the work in the fields. Uh, the longer a grape stays in the vine, the more sugars are going to develop in that wine. And used to just said, you know, Riesling's very yeah, often. So the, your like potential very, alcohol goes higher the riper so the fruit. So the potential was it depends on how much you ferment out. And obviously, the more sugar that ferments from the yeast, the higher the alcohol content, Correct. and the drier the and wine. And then the drier the wine, yes. So there's, but you're saying potential, right? So that's where the confusion happens, right? Because you know you're talking about the ripeness level of the grape and what the potential alcohol is, but it's not necessarily what happens during the vinification or you know. yeah. So you and, and the big misperception is that that cabinet is definitely a drier style. It is true that it's not as sweet, but you can make an Auslese dry. You can make a cabinet sweet. Uh, so that's really the decision of the winemaker, what he or she does with the respective fruit. That's why, I mean, von Schleinitz in 2013 decided to go away from this entire concept because there's so much misinformation out there that we can't battle it. So um, at von Schleinitz, we now have just everything is, um, is non-denominational. We just named our wines. Some are named after the vineyards. Some are uh, just names we came up with for particular styles. So people can actually go like, okay, that's the style of wine that I like and I can recognize it next time instead of having to read through. Mm-hmm. Oh, because also some some years we don't get the right fruit out of this vineyard to make that particular style wine. So you're shifting things around, which any inconsistency is hard to market. Absolutely. So, yeah. and, and that allows us to be a lot more consistent. And if you're picking up a bottle of Nitor dry Riesling, that's always kind of Spätleser, Ausleser, ripeness fruit, made into a very dry wine that really focuses in on the minerality. If you're getting a bottle of Apollo, it's the wine that is also from one of the top vineyards, usually Weissenberg, sometimes Uhlen, 
maybe a blend of it, but uh, predominantly Weissenberg generally. And we're using definitely aus laser ripeness fruit and let it ferment to about somewhere between one and 2%. Give it a little residual sugar that just gives the wine more texture, more, um, more viscosity, great food wine from salad to steak, actually, if you like your steak and taste it instead of period and We're in the middle of the country. Apparently that's what everybody eats. Well, then it would be a new experience to actually <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. pair that with a white wine or with with Apollo in that. Or then our the, the Weissenberg from von Steinitz is always from the Weissenberg, high ripeness fruit made into a sweeter style wine. So we we, we got away from this entire German concept because it's so mis, misunderstood. And we believe that once you pay attention to a producer and, their, and the styles that they produce, it's easier to navigate. But it always starts with a producer. So just don't think just because you like Cabernet or be like you like Riesling, every Cabernet or every Riesling will taste good to you. No, you right. need to pay attention to who the producer is, who is the integrity behind the product. So when That's you made that decision of von Schleinitz to, to uh, kind of move away from those designations on your label, um, is that... Kind of is that designated or required by any sort of uh, appellation requirements? No. No, so. it was the, it was the only way we could uh, move away from this tradition. Kind of similar to, you know, when great cabernets came out of Tuscany, the super Tuscans they all vino de tavola because they didn't fit into the mold of the uh, of the given appellation laws, and they're like, no, we want to make great wine, and same at von Schleinitz. I mean, my. My dad uh, worked together with my brother for over 30 years to take von Schleinitz from a no-name little winery to one of the top 100 in Germany. And if you're committed to quality, some of these traditional restrictions may hamper you. And so in that sense, I just... That's why I asked because I, I mean I've met several like French winemakers that have like kind of shunned the, the system and, and, and the requirements that have been put upon them and said, listen, hey... Okay, that worked a hundred years ago, but it doesn't work now, and so we're gonna we're gonna buck True. the system and, and do what we need to do. But we haven't really addressed. Uh, we've talked about German Riesling in general, um, but I'm glad that you led us back into von Schleinitz because what you guys are doing is a little bit different the way you're labeling, and you really make some sexy fucking wine, man. Thank you, <laughs> yeah. thank you, thank you. So, I mean, tell me a little bit about the winery itself. Uh, your brother actually um, is- yeah, took he took it over in the uh, in the early '90s from my father, who took it over from his father in the in the '50s, and uh, and slowly built it from just really supplying the the family restaurant to an actual uh, winery, and and then my brother took it into export to the United States, actually through. Uh, my sister-in-law who's from Colorado and so that was the incentive so the family in Colorado could then also buy some of the wine and get have access to the wine so, so should I give everybody the bad news right off the bat um, it's only available in, in, in how many states um, five yeah it's, a, it's about five where, <laughs> yeah. where you, you have a chance of finding, finding it there, it's licensed it, in a few more states but you and I probably drink more on, an, on a non-drunk weekend <laughs> than some of the distributors actually deplete sure sure well that's that's because we're, we're going to chip away at that stone though there's so, going to be a lot more demand after the uh, the shift drink bump is what we're going to call this but um, so but is it available online uh, I think some of the some of the people like Colorado can uh, can actually but ship. But not too much. I think. Not, not one of the, one of the major. No, not one of the. We, so, too, the, the winery is just too small sure. for that at this point as, as, as well to do a lot more. I mean, I, how much are you guys producing in a, in a about year? six to seven thousand cases a year total? Total. Jesus. 
Yeah. And that's, that's, and that's, that's spread amongst how many different kinds of wine? Uh, about 20. I mean, the or main labels. wine, that about 20. Um, but the, the main wine is the von Schleinitz Dry Wiesling. That's what really drives most of the business in, in, in Germany. And 80% of, of von Schleinitz's production is sold in Germany anyway. So only uh, a smaller part uh, is is actually exported. Unlike like other wineries that are well known in in the country, there it's flipped around. They're doing eighty to hundred percent in the United States and actually have hardly any domestic market. Okay, and uh, so the the dry riesling is the main the main thing. Our Swedish style riesling is actually a really small part of the production, but it's the main selling wine in the United States because here the expectation for riesling is to be sweet. Sure. Uh, we do quite a bit of sparkling wines, which is also unknown, uh, you know, outside of our borders, uh, that Germans are actually the number one sparkling wine consumers in the world. And for that, there's a lot of production in Germany to satisfy that demand in Germany. You guys make a uh, sparkling wine in a very champagne um, manner, correct? Yes. We, do, we do multiple. Actually, only one is exported. So the one that we can get, <laughs> or maybe you can if you yeah, live in one of the five states. But we actually do have a lot of uh, international listeners, so there might be people out there that can get their hands on this. Yeah. Um, so there's but, the VS Brut, which is really done in a champagne style. So nine to 12 months of uh, fermentation on the lease, then uh, bottle age a little bit, and then it's disgorged and and uh, and released. That's the VS Brut. We do make a, a rosé version of that. We make an extra dry that's only at the winery. Uh, and then for just uh, daily easy enjoyment, we make um, two sparkling wines just in forced carbonation method. And that's the Conseco, which is kind of funny. It's My brother's name is Conrad. It's his version of Prosecco, Conseco. <laughs> and it's K-O-N, Seco. <laughs> and, uh, and the other one is the HD Bubbly. That was a fun project of just making essentially a, a, uh, a bottled... Um, Adult soda pop. It's awesome. <laughs> it's, it's awesome. It's, it's just fantastic stuff because <clears throat> it has so much fruit that uh, you don't have to, uh, you know, buy orange juice to, to get it to taste good. <laughs> yeah, I would never do those things anyway. Uh, yeah, adding, adding orange So the fancy mimosa without the orange juice. But the, the limited availability has definitely not uh, turned me off from it. I mean, we're, I'm luckily I'm in Indiana, and we're trying to move it regardless. And I, I've yeah, I mean, it's available in, in in Indiana, Ohio, Maine, Colorado, and Mississippi of all places. So and it's totally, all friendship. It's all friendship relationships. Yeah, I was gonna say so, like that. Totally off topic because I've known you for several years. In fact, shit, man. You know what's funny is that this whole weird roundabout, like. Uh, I, I don't know synchronicity of the universe. I guess I don't know. I'm getting into Arthur territory here when it comes to to like how we're plugging in and everything is uh, kind of connect, interconnected. Well, but there's the thing last time I saw you, we, connect. we had several drinks, um, several drinks actually at Bar Luca in East Nashville, mm -hmm. which is now going to be Chopper Tiki, a tiki bar. And so, and we just opened the tiki bar, and that was Mike Wolf from Husk. That's going to be one of the owners of that. Yeah. Um, and so it's um, kind of this weird roundabout connection in, in East Nashville, which is where you live, right? Yes, and so I we live were in the northern part of East Nashville. So we were just a few blocks away from where we were staying with last time I was down in Nashville. Um, but anyhow, 
the, what I was getting at is that on a personal level is that you in the United States, this is not your primary income stream, that you actually only distribute in, in areas. I think you once told me that you only distribute in states where you have friends that you want to see and not want to see necessarily, but you like fr- you, that you have We're, friends that you can stay with. And um, yeah, because that, that's, I mean, if you're not exporting much and you don't have a travel budget that, you know, some large corporation will give you a credit card to spend on staying in hotels. So Conrad's not hooking you up. (laughs) Well, (laughs) still a small winery. Uh, 7,000 cases. uh, Yeah. And, uh, and so being, being able to combine, you know, this, uh, this with the pleasure of seeing friends and saving the hotel cost is certainly a a factor. Yeah, absolutely. And I thought that was really interesting that, um, I've never, I mean, obviously as a business model, that's probably not genius, but you, (laughs) again, it's your your second income stream. So, but it's fantastic because I mean, like that's it as a, and we had a long, long conversation prior to sitting down today about like, you know, how do you balance your life and just kind of that life balance between. And the distribution really follows where. People similar to you kind of get it, what Von Schleinitz offers in terms of great quality for the money, and they want to work with the product. I don't have to bang my head against, oh, you <laughs> should be working with us. No, they get it. So I'm, I'm providing a great product. They, um, they enjoy working with the wine. They see the value in it. And we can work together to figure out, okay, what do we need to do together to make this you know, successful and fun at the same time, instead of me going into a state where someone goes, Oh, I already got, uh, you know, relaxed Riesling on. I don't need you. Uh, no, I'm, I'm not going to bang my head against the wall with right. somebody that obviously has no interest right? for whatever reason. And I'm, I, I mean this in a respectful way. I'm not saying you're to whatever, you know, to get it, but they have a different focus and that's fine. Just I don't need to spend my energy to convince somebody that's not interested. So I'd rather go to people that are open-minded, that want to work with it, and then we can say, hey, let's let's create a great dinner. Let's do some fun stuff where people have a great experience drinking these wines. Well, it's funny you mentioned those dinners again because we talked about it earlier in the episode, but we... I talked to you yesterday and, and you said uh, that you've been following that concept for years yes. of doing the dual pairings with each it's, course. Cause it's, it's more, edu- it's, it's more fun. People take more away from it. I mean, they can go to any restaurant and re- any wine dinner and get, you know, great food and get hammered and forget what, sure, right. what the dinner was. Um, but, but you're talking about going into markets that you you just said you know like where you've kind of already got a receptive ear. So like you're talking about uh, obviously a restaurant or a bar or a liquor store or or you know whatever. I mean, it's, pe- it's people like you. I they remember already have when, when we did the dinner together. <laughs> what was the t-shirt you were wearing? Oh, my Brooks shirt. Yeah, yeah. It was. Uh, you must be a fucking idiot if yeah, you don't yeah, love yeah, Riesling. That's right. Yeah. If you don't, I, I, I don't almost wore it today. If you don't drink Riesling, you're a fucking idiot. That's um. Yeah, that's Williams out there at Brooks and the. Northwest. I have yet to have him on the show, man. I got to get him on because he, he's great. Um, Oregon, man, you know? Yeah, but it's, it's weed we, we were pursuing this. <laughs> But with this dinner, we were pursuing the, the pleasure of educating people from your side on a food that is not every day. Right, yeah. And Very on Filipino an influenced. Yeah. Exactly. And then put this together with something that a lot of people are also unfamiliar with. So you're, you're not just creating a culinary experience, but you're also creating an educational experience that people really do take home and go like, wow, I learned something about myself, about what I like, without somebody telling me what to like. I always hated these wine dinners where... 
somebody would say, with this food, this is the perfect wine, and you dare not stray. And I'm like, no, that's not... My you know, I wife. find that those kind of definitions might have worked 100 years ago or longer. But, you know, now that we're in the middle of 2019, you know, we, we have access to damn near everything. And and not only that, well, not in our state of Indiana, but like you can get online and order whatever pretty much you would like from KNL or Astor or whomever in the, in the country, any of the big country or the big distributors big in the country for the United States um, or even online uh, in, in Europe. And we've never had access like that before. You know, when you, would, you would grab a magazine and say, I, well, I'll never see that bottle, yeah. <laughs> you know, so. True. And, but the, the other aspect that that actually kind of puts into my mind that I would like uh, to say something about is that we often think on, uh, on wine and food pairings that, you know, your, whatever, your Italian food goes with Italian wines or your Spanish food goes with Spanish wine. And the it, old it adage, right? Like if it grows together, it goes together. Right. And uh, I, I remember traveling actually back then. This was a, a combined trip, Kermit Lynch, Bobby Catcher, whirlwind trip through France. That was terrible. And uh, I ate some great food. And, you know, while the winemaker was telling me all these great things about his wines and smoking his Goloise out of the corner of his <laughs> mouth, I realized... It has actually nothing to do with each other. It's actually not that the wine and the food goes together. They eat what they have. They drink what they have. And that's what built the consensus. It's not necessarily working. It may. And certainly I have had great wine dinners in the south of France with, with the food and the wine. And it worked fantastic. But today we have access to whatever we want. We can do you know, Filipino cuisine with German Riesling. And no, these countries are not in any way, shape or form close or related. Right. Yeah. Or Thailand, uh, you know, where there's no wine culture whatsoever, you know, yeah. and like, and now we're starting to see the big boom in China, um, you know, where there's not been a wine culture historically. So, you know, that's kind of changing the game as able, as everyone is becoming able to like order these wines and import and, I mean, it's it's a it's a double-edged sword, right? <laughs> you know, yeah, but it, it brings it brings <laughs> especially us back. if you're a producer that only makes seven thousand cases a year. <laughs> well, yes, we do produce more than we can drink, but we try. <laughs> but the the important part is really that we have all these choices today, and that also makes coming back actually to Riesling such an in interesting field for the geeks because now you can keep playing with whatever food you're eating. There is some style of Riesling made somewhere by some producer that may that in, will enhance that particular food that you're eating. And, um, and that I think is the exciting part about Riesling. You can, you can always pull another bottle and go like, Oh, this is going to be really different, but that maybe will work even better with this. And so it's, it's the, it's the geeks liquid because you can really geek out on it and go like, Oh, I have this on, or I want to taste that and it's going to be different. And it's, and play with it. And you can go really deep. Like if yes. you once you get geeky on Riesling, you can go very, very deep. I just got Raj Parra's new book. It's actually sitting right over here on the shelf. Um, and I wish the uh, the German chapter was a little bit uh, thicker. But I mean, it's 
it does go quite deep into the vineyards and and talks about the varietals. I mean, it just came out two days ago, so I haven't yeah. got I haven't read the whole book yet. Yeah, I'm yeah. just kind of skimmed through. But yeah, but you do. I mean, you're 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 riding along the Mosul Valley. Uh, Twenty years ago, Germany was at what ten percent, twelve percent red wine production. Today, Germany is at almost forty percent. Even especially in our area, the northern Mosul, great Pinot Noir area, the R Valley north of us great red wines you go down through the false region all kinds of pinot varietals interesting new stuff um you have a new generation that is not as bound by by a tradition and tries new things which is exciting i think i mean i'm i'm open to not being the same thing as we did for a hundred years but seeing people yeah, but you're like an east nashville hipster though <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure that i qualify for that but i'm certainly open-minded when it comes to young winemakers saying i i do, do want to i take the, the the ones that really do it well i take the tradition i understand this but i don't want to close my eyes because I didn't just live my entire life in this tiny village and that's all that counts right, i have been right to Oregon, I've been to Washington, I've been to Australia, I've been to, and these guys are doing wild, interesting stuff in their climate with their soil, and what lesson from that can I take and figure out how I can do what I do better? And that is exciting about the new generation of winemakers in Germany that, by the way, many of them are blown off the old system, and some of them go with more of like a vineyard designation, some of them goes the similar path as the uh, as von Schleinitz is but I think breaking the mold in in and exploring how to make better wine what's wrong with that no absolutely and I I think that's you know we we often talk about how like you know this in 2019 we've kind of overloaded uh the globalization and it's kind of made it this world market that hurts jobs and it hurts uh, a lot of things in industry and whatnot but I I I'm with you. I'm a little more optimistic about it. But like, I look at the things. Um, last week's episode is a perfect example. Um, we did an interview with Richard Steele. He's one of the greatest rum distillers in the world in Barbados. I wouldn't have had access to a gentleman like Richard, you know, 25 years ago because there was no social media. There was no way for me to contact him other than flying to Barbados and talking with him. And mm -hmm. so, like that, that interconnectivity is really. Um, to me, the, the benefit that we get out of this and this global market that we now have and we all have access to things. And it's it, not going to go away anymore. It raises the bar, right? Like, yes. I mean, we're, we're, we're... I mean, why do you think German red wines now can absolutely hang and in some tastings uh, succeeded beyond top Burgundy? Um, because that was the benchmark for them. They would travel, they explored, they tasted, and now you're looking at top producers from the Franken region, from the Baden region, uh, the Falls region that make world-class Pinot Noir. That didn't happen 30 years ago because they were just comparing their neighbor and both of them were really bad, just one was not quite as bad as the other. <laughs> and today that's very different. So I guess to summarize here before we... Before we wrap up completely today, we're what about two bottles and we got we, we had the first bottle of Chablis. Now we're in, we did bust out some Weinbach tonight. So um, from if, if our previous listeners would remember our uh, trip to well our interview with Patrick Leto, um and which led to a trip to um, Alsace. But anyhow, um, as we wrap up today, as a consumer is going in and they're looking and they see Riesling on a list. 
um, which uh, I have not personally been to Germany and, and I've not been able to visit what you guys do, but I have been to Alsace and, and I see quite a lot of Riesling on the list. How does one navigate that? Like, do you recommend just kind of what, what questions might one ask or to be pointed in the right direction? Well, ju just follow the, the, the taste profile that you're looking for. And A, again, pay attention to producer. If you can't, obviously you, you won't find, because we have 40,000 wineries in Germany. Sure. Um, and there, there are no, or very few uh, widely distributed brands right, um, yeah. because of that infrastructure. Um, but just first look at producer or ask, you know, who is the better producer of these and then just figure out whether you want something dry or sweet, something richer or something lighter. And you, you kind of need to rely on w the person guiding you and you may find somebody that really knows what they're doing. Maybe not, but that's really the best you can do in, in that confine. Um, it is interesting, uh, certainly over the last uh, 15 years, Riesling in Germany has really gone through a strong resurgence driven by uh, much higher uh, quality. Uh, a lot of the, the older generation that has made the same mistakes uh, that they learned from their grandfathers and, and fathers have kind of gone away to a younger generation that is a better educated, have looked beyond their little village. And so the quality in general has definitely made a huge improvement. And Riesling is widely accepted as one of the top grapes of journey within Germany that has not come to the United States yet. So that this is completely off topic, but it's a more in general question. As we were wrapping up, we are going to shift gears and keep going. But <laughs> uh, So well, th th that made me think of the last time I was in Italy, and I went to uh, visit Lorenzo Costantini out in Frascati. And Frascati is not known for their amazing, beautiful, like high quality wines, but right. he is one of the guys out there really chipping away at that stone. And there's a, a small cadre of people that are really trying very hard to kind of shift things. And they're approximately my age and your age, you know, we're kind of trying to figure out how to, how to, how to shift things, but you're kind of at all times, you know, because the a lot of the traditions, the laws, the legislation, appellations, or you know, just maybe even like I say, back to tr tradition, um, have set things in stone, and like this is how it should be. Um, going up against that, as von Schleinitz has, like not necessarily against it, but like changing the way you label uh, and not sticking with kind of the traditional yep. German system. You know, uh, how do you see that changing as we as we move forward? Because there's definitely a shift. I can see it already. Like I said, when I was in Frascati, there was a, it was almost a split. There was like the old guys that were growing grapes. Oh, that's that's and, still, and, and they were like, still the case. I can, mean, if you can we just, just sell as much as we can to Rome and that that's cool. We can pay our bills. We have money and we're good. And then there was the other half of the town that was like, no, we need to make a name for ourselves. We need to shed this like, you know, quantity over quality, like, you know, uh, Reputation and, that we have, and, and you have that split in the Mosul Valley too. You have your younger winemakers that will go different path. They they abandon the just like von Schleinitz, they abandon the traditional system, and you have people that stick to it. And I mean, it will take time to sort that out. Um, I mean, on a on a broader scale, what what I tried with uh, with the wine that 
my brother and I, you know, developed together is uh, the wine's called HD, high def, a clear picture of what Mosul Riesling is about: minerality, acidity, fruit. A really well-crafted wine that is affordable to actually go against all the blue bottles and the the domestic Rieslings and all the kind of that that's where I feel like the winemakers go like that's good enough for the crowd that drinks that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. HD is actually a very well-crafted wine for you know the ten to twelve dollar price. Totally, it is, and and it's something where you can go like, okay, this is this is real good stuff, and I can be proud of that as a as a as a winemaker. Where you're above good enough is good enough. It's not good enough. Yeah, I I think you you need to do something that is that is great, or don't do it. Um, but many of the the import labels, if you're looking at um, yeah, I guess I, I shouldn't be naming names. So, uh, <laughs> so here's where the main, wine kicks in. Well, yeah, honest, <laughs> honesty comes after two bottles. <laughs> so, um, so the um, it, it's just that many of them just go to Germany to the bottling companies and go like, okay, I, I want the cheapest juice you have and I can, right. that I can call Riesling. Because right. also, actually, one other bane of my existence is that people think things are Riesling that have actually no Riesling in it. Just because it comes out of Germany doesn't mean it is Riesling. So our topic is Riesling today. And when you're talking Milch, with people think German must be Riesling, there's hardly any drop of Riesling ever in, in, in that category of wine. Interesting. So, uh, so you... So you need to kind of pay attention to that. And, uh, um, <laughs> just, sorry, I'm laughing. I was like, I'm looking at your face, like the frustration. <laughs> You're like, oh. Well, I, I mean, this brings me actually to a, to a story about a, a, a restaurant in East Nashville where I was like, okay, you don't need to carry my wine, but you need to take this Riesling by the glass off the list because it has no Riesling in it. You're, you're, you're pouring a Liebfrau Milch from a well-known producer, but... It has no Riesling in it. And you're serving it on your list as Riesling by the glass. You can't do that. You can't have a Cabernet that actually, when you pour it, contains Zinfandel and Merlot. No, that's not how it works. <laughs> but it happens all the time. Well, my rep told me it's Riesling. Well, your rep right. is wrong. Right. I just encountered that yesterday. I had a, uh, a Spanish wine that arrived to me uh, at one of my restaurants that the rep told me was one thing. I printed off the spec sheet from the website, which was a different thing. Uh, which, as we were wrapping up, it does lead me to that. Like, where can people find find Vangelinus online so they can kind of look and see what's available? What you guys? I think the best best way is to just go to von Schleinitz, and that is v o n s c h l e i n i t z dot com, and you can email me. And I'll everybody's be- now hitting the uh, the iPhone back fifteen seconds. Like, hold on, that's German. That's v o n s c h l e i n i t z, and then just through the website find out who who has the wines, or just email me. I mean, it's it's not going to overwhelm my email inbox if the people. People that actually right. it. Yeah, and the I'll, four I'll people help. that listen to my show—no, <laughs> that's not what I'm saying. But the people that are actually going to search for the wines, um, and even if it's a couple hundred, I can handle that. And how can they reach you? And uh, just through the website. Okay, the, okay. The, oh, the that email, all goes to you. The email is on there, and it goes to me. Yes. So Conrad has all has you doing all of the uh, responses. Every, through the everything website. in the U.S. is my responsibility, and then if I need help, I'll reach out to Conrad, and he'll 
<laughs> you'll be there to back me up. So as we wrap up today, we always ask everybody, I, w- I say always, we, I, I've uh, dropped the ball on the last few episodes because I've, we've had this insanity in Miami um, and DC for that matter. Um, but we, I always like to ask, you know, uh, do you have any, you have any hangover cures? Because as we are, we're what, two bottles deep in now, I'm suspecting there's going to be a third bottle. Um, what kind of hangover cures might you offer? I mean, I don't know. You're the first German we've had on the show. Hangover cures? Yeah. Just drink Riesling. There's no hangover. At the lower alcohol content, I mean, you can stand through the night. That is true. But that's funny you say that because there is this perception. And I think it comes more with cocktails than it does with wine. But people have this perception, at least in the United States, that like... The, the sugar causes a hangover more than the alcohol does. I, I'm, yeah, I see your face. No, I'm, I'm with I'm, you, right? I'm, like, sugar okay, does not cause a hangover. If you eat 15 chocolate bars, you are not going to have a hangover. <laughs> and, and, and here's my, uh, my life experience testimony. At my brother's 50th birthday. Your brother Conrad? My brother Conrad's okay. 50th birthday in Germany. We started drinking at about 2 o'clock in the afternoon on that birthday party day. At 7 15 in the morning of the following day my brother was trying to pour me another glass of wine and I did just have to say Conrad look around we're the only two left let's go to bed (laughs) (laughs) and we're still drinking Riesling man this is awesome I like I can't wait to come visit you guys in fact I'd love to how old is Conrad now 61 that's his 62nd birthday (laughs) <laughs> let's let's hit it together, man. Um, that was definitely an awesome party. Tomas, this is awesome. I'm glad you hit me up when you were in town. I didn't know you were coming into town. And, I mean, we've we've had great times over the last 10 fucking years, man. It's been a while since we've known each other. So Yeah, but it's it's those good connections. You have you have something that creates that affinity that just wants you, wants you to reconnect. And that's what binds us together. Love for wine, love for educating people, love for good food, love for a good time. Always had a good time. Time, man. Well, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks uh, for having me. Until next time, cheers. Cheers. cheers.